Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you from New York City, although four hours ago I was in Washington, D.C., so I'm a little bit dislocated. We are joined today by our regulars, including Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well. Thank you, David. Excellent. And, of course, Corey Shockey, who is somewhere in transit from point A to point B. (laughs) How are you today, Corey? (laughs) exceedingly well and looking forward to being home in Washington. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to having you back. Of course, Corey's with the American Enterprise Institute. And then, of course, also among our regulars, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? I'm splendid. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us. And we have a special guest today, Derek Mitchell, who is president of the National Democratic Institute. He's visited with us before, has had a distinguished career in the U.S. government prior to doing this, also in the world of consulting. How are you today, Derek? Doing fine, David. It's an honor to be with this August group. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, you know, the reason we invited you here, beside the fact that you're an intelligent, experienced person with a lot of interesting insights, of course, is that on Thursday and Friday, this administration held its Democracy Summit or Summit of Democracy, something the president had been talking about since the campaign trail. And I thought it was a good chance to talk not only about that, but also about the state of democracy in the world and what we should be doing about it. Why don't you give us your brief assessment of the value of the Summit of Democracies as it unfolded? Well, I think their expectations and their ambitions were relatively modest. They said in the campaign, the Biden campaign said they would hold this in the first year of the term, and they did that. There's some question about whether they could achieve that, and they did. So it's relatively low bar. But I do think it's a good thing to hold a summit for democracy like this. I know there's a lot of quibbling and 
cynicism about it, but it sends a very important signal about what this means to the United States, to the Biden administration, despite the humility we have to do uh, harbor going into it because of the state of our own democracy. We have to be confident that democratic values are essential for the world that we want to live in, the world we would like to shape. So I believe it, it succeeded in, in that way of laying a foundation uh, and sending a signal about the importance, but they have also managed the expectation by saying that what follows is a year of action, that the real summit will be a year from now. So we will, it's a work in progress, and I appreciate that they've at least started the clock. Well, I want to know the truth about the mysterious disappearance of the Taiwanese map. And I don't know if our listeners have been following this possible global scandal, but when the leader of Taiwan was speaking and PowerPoint slides, her PowerPoint slides were displaying a map that depicted Taiwan in a different color than China. Mysteriously, her video feed went black. And I would like to know, was it the Chinese who pulled the plug or was it the White House who pulled the plug or was it, as the White House claims, merely a technical snafu? Or was it you, Derek? I didn't know. I would never do that because I just got back (laughs) from Taiwan a week ago, in fact, and my wife is from Taiwan. So I'm a lover of Taiwan, no doubt about it. Very Um, suspicious, though, Derek. You have to admit this, this reeks of skullduggery. Well, let's clarify a few things. (laughs) One thing it is denied, as you say, by the White House, that's not true. But I watched this. And what happened is two things I have to clarify. One is uh, it was not the leader of Taiwan. It was a a person, a woman named Audrey Tang, who is a minister without portfolio, who is responsible for their civic tech work. And she was talking about the great work Taiwan has done to link up the government and civil society in partnership to get through COVID. Taiwan is one of the real success stories in managing COVID within their society and ensuring people had information, there was contact tracing, et cetera. So she was going through that and then put up a map. And what it actually showed was the degree of political liberty in Asia. So it didn't show different countries by different colors. It showed the level of political development. So it had China, Vietnam, North Korea in red. It had Taiwan in green as one of the most liberal open societies. Them's fighting words, Derek. Well, it is. It's in fact a different polity. It's a its own de facto independent entity, political entity, and it is by Freedom House's standards the most open society in Asia. So she was showing that map, showing that Taiwan is the freest open society in Asia, and it could be that someone, because when she came back later, she did not go off. She went on, ended her time. When they came back to her, they only had her title on the screen. So there was a question of what happened there, and I can't answer to that, of what happened there. Uh, Maybe someone choked. Maybe someone misunderstood. You're exactly right. I doubt it was the Chinese because it would have gone off entirely. So maybe someone in the White House, but I can't answer exactly what happened. Well, then the more serious question behind that slightly frivolous question, of course, is some critics of the summit have argued that this is essentially the U.S. under the guise of uh, pushing democratic solidarity, really trying to line up other states in an anti-China coalition. If that is in fact the case, and if it, if in fact it was the White House that took down the video, which they deny vociferously, that would actually suggest that far from trying to line everyone up against China, that they're a little bit nervous that China will perceive it that way. And, I, and, and it is interesting to think about the role of China 
looming over this as a major, major non-participant, uh, irrelevant or, or the fundamental shadow that, that hangs over all of this? Well, it's a reason why China is not a participant. It's because they're not a democracy. And so they, they are. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. I, I thought know they, they, I thought they, they were. were. They said they were. They told me they were. I swear it. I know. No, they said they were. A process. A process. Oh, democracy. shit. OK. I got it all wrong. I yes. Completely. The people love them. Don't ask, you know, just ask them in front of officials that the people of China, of course, love them. But that's the reason they're out there. But China likes to make everything about itself. It likes to make things about China. And others, of course, are looking at the challenge and the, the great power competition between the United States and putting everything in that box. It, it really goes to how we look at what's going on with democracy and autocracy. Is this about great power competition between countries, or is it a great power competition between systems touch and values and standards? And the way I think about it, and I think it's important that we do couch it this way, It's about what are the rules, norms, standards that will define the international system in the 21st century. Regardless of country, what are those rules, values, and standards that we have sought and we have tried to shape and we have through international institutions for more than 70 years? Right now, those are up in the air for the first time in seven decades, I would say, in a serious way. China represents the biggest threat, but they're not the singular threat to that. So it is important that we not see this as anti-China that it is not couched as anti-China. China will want to make it that way so that they can be victims. And they can then say, you know, if you are a part of this, you are against us. It should be, and I think they did try to make it an affirmative in a thing. They're affirming certain values and not against anything. And they have to maintain that very nuanced position, I think, for this whole effort to succeed. Ed, you have written about the Democracy Summit, and perhaps you have a question. I'd just like to press on this sort of appropriateness of America, even though it was done in a fairly low-key way, America hosting this summit at this time, given the extraordinary challenges to American democracy and the question mark over its future, coming, you know, exclusively from the Republican Party at a time when Biden's unable to, for mathematical reasons in the Senate, to push through absolutely essential defenses of America's electoral and democratic system. Isn't this a little bit of an own goal in terms of just the timing and optics of where American democracy is? Everyone recognizes in the administration, I imagine, recognizes the awkwardness of this, the glass house syndrome that's involved in this. As I say, they had said that they would hold this in the first year. It was a a vow they would make. They now have to win in the election had to do this. And I think there are a lot of folks in the administration, frankly, who are like, just want to get through it. What they wanted to do, their idea originally was to get some legislation passed this year on voting rights, on democratic reform, they can bring to the table by December. They couldn't do it, as you say, because of the weakness of our own democracy and the problems here at home. But that doesn't mean, I think, in their minds, in my mind as well, that we shouldn't still proceed to promote these certain values and standards, even if we have to go into it with more than a small dollop of humility because of the state of our own democracy. It just points up our point that the weaker your democracy, the weaker your society, and the weaker your security. We are weaker because of all of this. But it doesn't mean we don't have a standing to talk about what we we should be aspiring to, both at home and uh, internationally with our partners. I'd just like to follow up a little bit on this question. Can you foresee it's a line that the U.S. could cross where it was no longer sort of 
had the standing that you talked about? We very nearly did not have um, peaceful transition of power in the U.S. Right. If that coup attempt were to have been successful, if in an upcoming election, the candidate who got the majority would not win the election because of shenanigans, if the efforts to suppress vote continued to a certain degree, is the United States in jeopardy of losing its standing? I certainly think so. I think many of us, Rosa will be in the lead on this, even her amazing work last year during the election and continuing now in terms of recognizing what's going on in our country and others who are observing what's happening at the state and local levels. I mean, this is extremely concerning about whether the will of the people is reflected credibly in its leadership and the outcome of elections. And if that doesn't exist, it's not reflected, then we're in absolutely serious trouble. And then whether we're able to hold something like this or not, that's the least of our problems. Our problems are really that our democracy will be, we'll have civil conflict, we'll have divisions that make us focus at home much more abroad and affect our leadership in fundamental ways. <laughs> I, can only, I can only think of this when you, with your reference to Rosa, because A, Rosa has been doing amazing work on this. And B, every time I say, are we in the midst of a constitutional crisis, Rosa says no. We got there eventually. We got there eventually, David. Yeah. <laughs> it finally happened in January. Do you have a comment on what Derek just said, Rose? I actually don't think the parlous state of our own democracy is a reason not to have this summit. I, I think, on the contrary, to me, it makes the summit far more important than it has been in the past. I mean, in the past, I thought it was just silly and self-congratulatory under previous administrations, quite frankly. But I think this is the moment when we need it. This is the moment when we need to be, it's, it's not just an issue of urging other states to be or become democratic or improve their democracies. This is also a moment to come together and say, we need to do this too. We're, we're working on it too. We need, all of us need to be supporting each other. All of us need to be holding each other accountable. And I think one of the critiques of the, of the whole idea of the summit has been, of course, that democracy comes from within, that you can't impose it from without. You shouldn't imagine you can impose it from without. Diplomacy doesn't produce democracy or democratic reform. So what's the point of a bunch of states getting together to talk about this? The only way we're going to get democracy, whether it's here or anywhere else, or improve our democracy is if our own population, our own civil society institutions and so forth are motivated to, to care about it, to work for it and so forth. I think that's that's both true and misleading, because certainly when you look at this country, there are all kinds of ways in which pro-democratic reforms have been, at least in part, motivated by pressure, external pressure, you know, that the civil rights movement, the embarrassment during the Cold War of having the Soviet Union and China be able to look at the U.S. and say, hey, you don't give full voting rights to a big chunk of your population. You discriminate on the basis of race, for instance, you know, that that kind of diplomatic pressure can make a difference. You know, that that kind of diplomatic pressure can make a difference. We live in a global economy. We live in a country that in terms of security is, is deeply interconnected globally. If we end up being criticized or shunned or left out of crucial arrangements by other states because they don't see us as living up to our own democratic promises, that does ultimately hit hit us where it hurts and even hits potentially Trumpies where it starts to hurt. If we see it as triumphalism, yes, this would be a terrible time for democratic triumphalism on, on our part. If we see it instead as saying, 
oh shit, guys, you know, we're, this is under threat. We all need to help each other out here. This is a moment for us all to think about how we help each other. Then I think it's actually quite important. And to describe as well, David, what's at stake? I think not everybody understands what's at stake in the degradation of democracy and these values internationally. We have to remind ourselves, we have to come together and and recognize, yes, at home, it's a huge problem for us. But as the president said, it is a defining challenge of our time, one of the defining challenges of our time. Ed, you had a question about Burma. I did. uh, And and Derek, of course, you were ambassador there at, at a very different time, although it's not that long ago. To what we're going through now, um, Obama was gradually sort of becoming less unfree, um, held elections, Aung San Suu Kyi was considered to be an, un, an untarnished, deserving winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Things have gone incredibly wrong since then, not just the coup, but of course the Rohingya repression. That's a very brutal example of the democratic backsliding we've seen worldwide or the democratic recession that that some people refer to worldwide. But what, what does that example that you know so well in Burma, Myanmar, whatever we're calling it, what has it taught you? What does it tell you about the challenges we face when we look at democracy worldwide as opposed to just the condition here at, in the US? Well, it teaches a lot of lessons. And we knew those going in too, how tenuous the transition was. This was a top-down liberalization. But we have to manage our expectations in these transitions. They're not going to be smooth or, or easy. And countries have very deep, countries like Burma, Myanmar, have incredibly complex internal dynamics that have been frozen by military dictatorship for 50 years. And that includes the Rohingya crisis. It includes the peace or the, the lack of peace, the internal ethnic conflicts that have been raging for a long time. And you open up people's ability to speak and to act freely. And you're going to get, this goes to the Rohingya question, you may not like what you hear. So an election does not make democracy. There was an election in 2016. There was liberalization from above, but there was no change in the constitution. There were the same old mindsets with the same old people and the same old positions of authority and power for the most part. And I think we also learned that you don't put your stock on one person. We hoped that Aung San Suu Kyi would be different than, in fact, she kind of showed evidence of in private but we hope she would rise to be the leader that she needed to be. And she did not rise to that occasion, unfortunately. I think that's another key lesson. And then the final lesson is if guys with guns decide that they're done and they want to brutally suppress a society and take over, they can do it. And, that, and we've seen coups, what, four coups in Africa this year. We had the coup in, in Burma. There's not much you can do about that. But what we're also seeing is those years when I was there and people got a taste of freedom, In Burma, they're not taking it anymore. They're not saying we're just going to go back to the way it was. They're coming out and essentially dying for their rights. They had a taste of democracy. And this idea that democracy is in recession or people don't want it, no, it's under attack. But the demand for democracy in many ways is higher than ever. You see from people on the streets and the response of people to the authoritarian push. And I think that's another lesson we need to take, which is a slight positive lesson from the, uh, from the lesson of Burma, even though it's a horrible, horribly brutal situation. How much damage are we doing by not taking opportunities for expanding democracy in undemocratic countries? Are there opportunities we're missing? Are there 
places that need our help that we're averting our eyes from, I'd love to know where the opportunities we're missing are. It depends who the we are. I mean, certainly NDI and, and the National Endowment for Democracy and International Republican Institute, we are all over the world working with, with folks, typically in countries that are undergoing the democratic transition. But we've worked offshore with, with the Belarusian opposition and assisting them on messaging and civil society and that type of work. And so there are closed societies where you can, might be able to help a little bit with those who are seeking to fight the uh, oppression. But I don't know that we're missing anywhere. The U.S. government, can they do more? There's always an argument to be made that they can step up and speak out more or build coalitions to stand on the side more urgently with some of the uh, human rights defenders, democracy defenders. But that's, a, that's an art, not a science. It's always a question of how far you go, given other interests. But um, in terms of NDI and others, we're, we're in a lot of places doing, working with a lot of people, and I'm not sure we're missing anywhere. Let me ask a quick follow-up question to that. That seems like a very important objective you know, not just preaching democracy to the converted, but figuring out how to promote democracy in places that have been resistant to it or have limited it. And when we tend to talk about democracy, we tend to talk about political processes. But I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, for example, income inequality and other factors, suppression of women, suppression of ethnic groups, promotion of extremist views, or even theocratic views, tend to be impediments to democracy. And the question is, are we doing enough in our democracy promotion efforts to address these factors that are directly related to the absence or to the flourishing of democracy? We need to do more. There's no doubt about it. And you hit right on the head. It's what we do at NDI now and what I've been talking to my team about, a number of what you just said, which is it's, it's not just simply about institutions or processes. It's not just about an election or about building a political party. It's about, first of all, building a culture. I mean, cultures, a culture of democracy is really what's needed, not just going through the motions of democracy. That takes a lot of time. The mindset of compromise, the things that we're not doing in the United States basically that we've lost is the culture of democracy. And that's why it's so, it's so weak. But the other parts of it that you mentioned, the very practical sort of applied democracy is what I call it, instead of pure democracy, like pure science that you talk about, you know, of, of elections or processes. Applied is ensuring that democracy delivers. And you hear a lot about this from President Biden and others, that it has an application to people's lives. So they feel like this governance system actually delivers for them. Because they will want anyone who can deliver a job or dignity to them. And if democracy doesn't, then they'll look for an alternative. So we have to think in those terms, in very practical ways, not just in technical ways, but also empowering women, empowering young people, because we're seeing the demographics in Africa and Asia and the Middle East that are exploding. They want more of a voice. You have to give them, create space for that. And technology, the digital technology space, which is absolutely maybe the longest poll where if you don't have good information, facts, and there's disinformation flowing, people don't know, you know how to understand what they're seeing, then democracy is impossible. So all these different elements also have to be embedded in a democracy for it to function, which provides, I mean, it's so a bottom line, this is hard. Democracy is not easy. It is not linear. It is not simple. It is never done, we always say. Uh, autocracy is pretty easy. Sit back and let the government just 
take over, but it, it doesn't work ultimately. In the short term, it may deliver something. In the long term, it will not, not for the dignity of human beings. So we have to work on the democracy every generation and recognize how hard this is and manage your expectations with humility. At this point, we say goodbye to the people who have been listening to us for free and say, come back soon. Those who can afford the, you know, roughly cost of a, a latte a month to help support what we're doing and benefit from that with a lot more content and participation. We appreciate it. Go to the dsrnetwork.com and click membership and help us. And then you can listen to all this bonus content, which is going to follow in one moment. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current LA Times legal affairs columnist, and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.